Thank you for joining us today at Revolution 22. We are a church in downtown Boise, Idaho. As we learn from God's word in the book of John, we pray that his word would be received and would bear fruit in your life. Our scripture this morning comes from John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. It says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Uh, this, is, uh, this is one of those scriptures that Nate just read here that is incredibly uncomfortable, yet really, really beautiful section of scripture as well. It's one of those ones that, that honestly, like when you come to it, it it's kind of teed up with all kinds of really easy application, but it's the application that many of us will kind of squirm at. And I felt like all week long, Actually, the last couple weeks as I've studied through this, I felt like the Lord kept confronting my life in ways that were really difficult. So if today all you're getting is just me applying what the Lord is showing me and you just get to see kind of into what the Lord's doing with me, then cool. But my hope would be that you also see and allow the Spirit to, to work in your own hearts with where um, He is pushing on you to make you more like Jesus Christ. This text is, is really interesting. The Gospel of John is laid out really kind of brilliantly inspired by God as John has written it, and the first 11 chapters are essentially the first 33-ish years of his life. And then we come to chapter 12, and it's this big transition point just after the last of the biggest of miracles he's done, which is raising Lazarus from the dead, comes into chapter 12, which then transitions us to the last six days of Jesus's life. So then the rest of the book of John from chapter 12 to 21 is the last six days of Jesus's life. That's a, it's a lot of information packed into an extended amount of time for just six days. But in this text, it's it's interesting because like John is doing what he always tends to do, which all the way through all the miracles you saw, every time that there was something that Jesus said or a question brought to Jesus or a miracle that happened, there were always two responses to it. There was always conflict and people that were coming against Jesus and trying to argue against him, and there was surrender to him. And in this story, kind of set right in the middle of the transition to the last six days, we see this very thing. A couple things that are need to understand about this text that are important. First off, we see that in Mark and Matthew, this story is pretty much parallel with what we have in John. There's a few little differences, like a couple days off, or a, um, or uh, they say in Matthew and Mark that he anoints his head. In John here, he talks about the feet. Uh, most scholars tend to agree that it was most likely the head and the feet, kind of the entirety of Jesus with the amount of nard that was used. But then we have this one kind of text in Luke chapter 7 
that, that is different enough that most scholars believe that what you see in Matthew, Mark, and John is one account of, of, of what happened with Jesus' life, and Luke is another account that happened early on. And the reason for that belief, even though you see a woman letting her hair down and with tears wiping Jesus' feet, is there's, there's enough differences between those, that account and the other three that they're really hard to, to place. Like the, the, the first account in Luke, the, the woman that's, that's letting her hair down and doing this is defined as a sinner. We don't see that necessarily from the Mary and Martha and Lazarus combo in Matthew, Mark, and, and John. The other really huge discrepancy is that the part that happens with Mary with her hair and the tears with Jesus in Luke 7 is, is a year and a half before this time period. So the, the time is set really, really different. So most scholars, there's a handful that would believe like, that's eh, it's all one and the same. It's just kind of over time has changed. But most scholars believe that it's different. And the reason why I think it's important for me and, and why I'm just going to kind of communicate as if Matthew, Mark, and John are a different account than Luke is because in Luke, the conflict is with religious leaders. We see that the Pharisees are the ones that are upset about what this woman is doing, and they don't necessarily see that they're upset about the, the cost or the expense of the oil. They're just upset about the fact that she's a sinner touching him. And that the conflict, the confrontation is if he was a prophet, he would have known, is what we see in Luke. In this text, what's really interesting is in, in here we get John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? We get John saying, Judas is the one that says this, and then he goes on and tells him, like, he's the one that betrayed him. We get those footnotes, like, John is writing this later on, and I can't help but think like John is still scarred by the way that Judas hurt him in the writing here. But in the gospel of Matthew and Mark, we see that it wasn't that, that maybe Judas had spoken up, but that all the disciples became indignant towards her. So it was, it was a disciple effort. And the reason why I think that's important is it's so often easy for us to see that an outsider looking at a Christian doing something or an outsider looking at someone worshiping Jesus would have conflict. This is one of those situations where we see the inside, the people of Jesus, the ones that are closest to Jesus, in conflict with each other. It's a really interesting story. It talks about where this is done at the house. We see we get the name um, from Matthew and Mark. This is at Simon the leper's house. Now, I don't know if, if you or me or not, but I don't know if I would want my name to be Simon the leper. The poor guy, like that's all he's known by in the scripture is he's the leper. We know that for him to have been at their house and for this to happen and for him to even have a home in the town, he would have, been, he would have had to have been cleared by the by the religious leaders, that he is no longer has leprosy. So how he was healed most likely was Jesus at some point, but we don't have that story. We don't have that. We also know in all the Gospels that even in the Gospel of John, like if I were to write all the things that Jesus did, we would, we would go on forever. So we know that there were many other things that happened. So most likely, most people believe that Simon the leper was a man who had leprosy at one point, was healed, and the poor guy just couldn't get rid of the nickname. Okay, so like he just, he just became Simon the leper, and it's at his house. And then we see that in his house, there's Lazarus and, and Martha and Mary. And most of you would know Martha and Mary. This is a story where we get like Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to Jesus while Martha's in the kitchen slaving away. And you get that sermon about like serving Jesus or being with Jesus. Like that kind of, this is, the, this is the tandem. This is them. This is the group of people. Lazarus, Martha, and Mary are all together. And some would like to try and jump and say that Simon the leper is somehow related to Mary and Martha and Lazarus, but, but that's just conjecture. We don't know that. Most likely, this is a house, they're celebrating, and Simon the leper has reason to celebrate Jesus because at some point he had leprosy and now he does not. And Lazarus has reason to celebrate Jesus because, well, he was dead for three days and now he's not, right? So there's this party kind of happening, but it's a party that's happening in a house that's getting closer to Jerusalem, 
getting closer to the Passover, and it's a meal that's not, it's not a Passover meal, it's just a meal that's happening, and they're in this, this space where at the table, they're all reclining at the table where the feet would have been laid away from the table, and they're kind of sitting there, and Lazarus is sitting at the table, and Simon the leper is sitting at the table, and, and Mary's in the room, and we see this, and I can't help but think, like, could you imagine the dinner conversation? Here's a man that was dead for three days that was raised up. Like, I feel like I'd want to ask him some more questions, right? Like, hey, Lazarus, tell me, when did the smell go away? You know, like that's one of the questions I would want to ask him or, or all these different things. Like there's, this would be such a fun feast to be at. Like here's the, the Messiah, the King Jesus and, and the disciples after years of following him, they've seen many miracles. And here are Mary, Martha and Lazarus just sitting at this table. And Simon Leper, who doesn't have lepers anymore, is hosting it. He gets to just sit in and watch this conversation happen and what's happening. It'd be a beautiful thing. And by all intents and purposes, it kind of makes sense. But then Mary does something that, let's be honest, if I had anyone over to my house for dinner and I was sitting there and we were eating and all of a sudden Jen got down from the table and let her hair down and started wiping my feet with perfume, it would get awkward. Let's just be honest. Even today, it would be awkward. Mary does this in the confines of home. And, and what she does for us, even if we tried to put ourselves in the shoes of that happening today, it'd be like, this is awkward, this is weird, this doesn't make sense at all. In that day, it was so taboo. What she does was so out there, so ridiculous, so, so far off that it would make any person uncomfortable. And yet, I think we can learn a lot from both the people there and Mary herself. A couple other things that are important to know. Mary is using nard. We get from the Gospel of Matthew and Mark that it's out of an alabaster flask. The flask itself would have been a glass thing, would have been very expensive. Nard was most of the time, it was a precious spice that was imported from India. And most of the time what they would do with nard because it was so expensive is they would, they would cut it. They would add other things to it to, to make it last longer. So pure nard means that it's just nard. And this is about the equivalent of like a Coke can, like 12 ounces of, of nard in, in, in this alabaster flask. She breaks the glass top off so it can't be sealed again and uses it on Jesus. Puts it on his hair and his, his clothes and his feet. Com- completely covers him with all of this nard. And so much so that it says that the fragrance filled the whole room. Like, you guys all know that person that wears too much cologne that walks into a room, right? Like, oh, like, man, like, well, they're here, welcome them. This was a fragrance that I bet was so potent that even when they went to eat, they felt like they were tasting it at this point. Filled the room. And I don't know about you, but there's something to be said about the way that we worship Jesus filling the room so much that it's almost in 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 everyone else's, like, smell and taste, and so he fills this room. And we get that from this count and all the other counts that, that the alabaster flask, the pure nard about that size was, was worth 300 denarii, is what he's saying. And Judas, and we, we can't fault him because again, like John like totally like singles him out, but the, the rest of the disciples in Matthew and Mark were both indignant and kind of jumped in on this conversation too. But a, a denarii was a day's wage. And so by simple math, if you take out the Sabbath and, and kind of the, the, um, the many festivals that they had, that's essentially an entire year's worth of labor, done, paid, dumped out on Jesus in one setting, not counting the alabaster flask. This is, that's like, to, to even equate that today, that's like, that's like Jen having a bottle of perfume that's worth $35,000 and just like, you know, and then wiping with her hair. Like, like, I mean, just like, that's, it's, it's ridiculous. It seems so wrong. And then honestly, like, in some ways, I don't fault the disciples or Judas for saying like, that money could have been given to the poor. Like, if you're going to just throw this out, 
why didn't you sell it and give this money to the poor? And John lets us know in writing later on that Judas was just taking money out of the money bag, something they figured out from accounting later on in life, that he was messing it up. And so his motivation wasn't truly for the poor because he wanted to have that denarii, that money put into the money bag, so he had more for himself to go around. 300 denarii, that's so much money. The other thing we don't know is, is where Mary got this. Was this a, an heirloom? So Martha and Lazarus would have been on the hook, like this was some of their wealth, if it was. Was this, a, was this for a dowry? So she just literally squandered what would be given should some man want to marry her. In essence, marrying Jesus. But there's a beautiful picture in that. Was it that they were a family of wealth? I mean, even that was still crazy. This would, normally like a king or a high priest would be anointed with some, but never the whole thing like that. And they would usually not use nard because nard was so expensive. So we have this, this interesting thing happening where, where the dinner's happening or the dinner started and, and Lazarus is there and Martha's doing what Martha does. She's in there making food because she's like server extraordinaire, but this time she's not complaining about Mary not being there. And you know what's interesting too? If you look at this Mary, the three times we see her in scripture, all three times, the first time is when Mary and Martha are fighting. The second time is when, when, she, when Jesus approaches after Lazarus' death and then right here. And you know what? All three times she's at the feet of Jesus. All three times, this character only shows up in Scripture, and every single time, she's at the feet, on her ground, before Jesus. And something else that's important for us to understand in the context of things is that cleaning feet was degraded for the least of people. It was, it was like, there was, the person that deserved no honor was the, some, was the one that would, would, would clean feet. No honor. Like, this is, this is a, a degrading thing. Like, to do this was, was incredible. What's also funny is that she did it with her hair, which in this day, to, to let down your hair was, was not shined upon as a woman. It was, it would look, they'd be looked at as promiscuous, or even, that's what prostitutes did, or this is, this is ridiculous. And here she, she pulls down her hair and doesn't use towels that Jesus, literally a chapter later, is going to use towels washing his disciples' feet. So why doesn't she grab a towel? She throws off all inhibitions to sit at the feet of Jesus and to worship him in a way that, that honestly makes me and should make all of us feel a little uncomfortable. And really, when we come to this text, I think most of us want to apply it in many different ways, and there's so many interesting things and, and wonderful applications that God can give us through his spirit through this text alone, but I just want to, I just want to hit a few. I'm going to kind of shoot at a little bit of, a, of them, and we'll land hopefully in a spot that each of us will be healthily convicted by the Spirit of God to live a life that worships Jesus like Mary. See, I think um, one of the things that we see over and over again in Scripture is this idea of counting the cost. Counting the cost, counting the cost, counting the cost. And I think uh, Jesus says it this way in Luke 14, 26 through 30, and then also verse 33. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and his wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus speaking hyperbole here, saying he doesn't need to hate them, but the love that you have for Jesus will seem like you hate other people because you love Jesus that much. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. I'm certain that many of us aren't trying to build a tower, but you get the point here, right? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see, to begin, see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Skipping down to verse 33, he says, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has 
cannot be my disciple. I mean, we've heard this. You've heard me and countless other people over the course of, of history say, if you want to follow Jesus, die to yourself daily, die to yourself daily, die to yourself daily. And I, I tend to believe that most all of us have counted that cost to some degree. But what happens is I think unintentionally, we count the cost at first. And, and if you could take yourself back to the beginning of following the Lord, maybe for you, some of you, that was a long time ago. Maybe some of you, that's, that was very recent. Maybe some of you sitting here today, that has not happened yet. But you can remember that moment when like, you didn't have all the answers. You didn't know what was going to come. And there was a bit of, of, of timidity and fear and, and questions, but yet you felt this, this peace in the Messiah. You felt this understanding that he is mine and I'm his and that I can be with him. And in that moment, you counted the cost, but you didn't really count the cost entirely for your life because very few of us think that far ahead. And what happens is, is we start doing a little bit of different math when it comes to counting the cost. See, instead of counting the cost in the sense of where he says, you must renounce all that you have or you cannot be my disciple, we start counting the cost mathematically and saying, what's the minimum I can do to still be your disciple? Or we say, how much can I do in this one area so that I don't have to acknowledge or even engage in all these other areas? And we, we start counting the cost in a different way. One of the ways that this could be simply applied is money. And I understand that like people are like, oh, money, I hate talking about it. Yeah, because many of us unfortunately have dealt with the fact that money is our God. Jesus says it this way. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's Matthew 6, 21. It says it this way in Matthew 6, 24, just after that, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Yet all of us, myself included, <laughs> tend to find ways to try and figure out how money can still be a big part of our life. We count the cost, but it's, okay, Jesus, how much do I really have to give to you and still be a disciple? As opposed to, Jesus, it's all yours, and I will live for you. It's an easy one here. She, she spends a year's salary anointing Jesus. We can argue that theologically she didn't know what she was doing, just like Caiaphas when he, he says that one must die for all. Like she's, she's anointing the king before he's, he's crucified. Like it's for the burial. Like this is beautiful. Even when he says, leave it for my burial. Like he's not saying leave like there's extra oil here. He's like, no, let this be a memory that this is going to be seen as her anointing the king before a burial. So he turns it into a beautiful theological thing. But guys, that was so wasteful. How many of you woke up this morning and felt like the Lord was telling you to give your year's salary to him? Most of us say, whoa, whoa, I mean, I got a mortgage, I got, whoa, 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 I can't, I can't do that. But see, most of us, when it comes to money, our, our question isn't count the cost as in what do we do with this money? It's, it's God, is, is, is this much okay? Can I, can I give you this much and still live on this? I think it's, as we look at Mary, I think it's worth saying that maybe we should be willing to throw off a few more inhibitions when it comes to finances. And that may be giving in generosity uh, to, to the church, to missions. We have missionaries that need finances. There, are, there is no shortage of people doing God's work in need of God's money to do God's work. But I, and I've said this before, and I don't know if it's received well, but I'm going to say it again anyways. Um, but show of hands, how many of you have ever spent too much on something for yourself? Like, you know it was wasteful. Be honest. Come on, show of hands. For those of you who got your hands low, it's okay. I see you. Okay? We've all done this. I've done this. And I've justified it because 
I want this, or I need this, or I feel like this would be good, or, or this would help me in the family, or this is where it's at. I, this makes sense. And we spent, we were frivolous. We spent too much on ourselves. Okay, now show of hands. In fact, actually, don't put your hands up. How many of you have ever spent too much on Jesus? How many of you have ever spent too much money? Like that was an unresponsible amount of money to give to this mission or this need. That's, that's the part I kept wrestling with myself. I'm not sure there's many times in my life I can say that. I've counted the cost, but I've done math a similar to maybe Judas, where it's like, oh, this is a safe amount that I can live on. And then I'll give a little bit here. I think many of us, if not all of us, at some point in our life should have that moment where it's like, man, that was so wasteful to give that much money, but I was being faithful to what God had called me on this. Because every single one of us probably have countless stories of doing that to ourselves for ourselves. I think we can learn from Mary in that there really isn't enough financially that you can do that will ever be enough to worship Jesus or too too much to worship Jesus. What's interesting in the disciples' frustration towards Mary, what they're essentially saying is that that was too much to worship Jesus with. They were, they were indignant of the fact that she was wasteful on something because how dare she worship Jesus that extravagantly? We can see this applied in the way that we serve. We serve uh, in, in many different ways. We see in Colossians 3, 23 through 24, it says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Or James 2 says it even feistier. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So let me pose the same question that I've been wrestling with myself all week long. As I'm coming off of rest and trying to figure out how to live my life full of rest in the presence of the Lord, but also recognizing that my life is the Lord's and I'm to serve him. There are so many ways that we could pour ourselves out, but I think too many of us have counted the cost in our life in the sense that we've done math that says, I only have so much time, so what little can I do to feel good about serving Jesus? What's the minimum amount I can do to say that I'm serving you, Jesus? This is, this is, again, and this is, please hear me on this. I'm not trying to condemn you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If the Holy Spirit is convicting you, please don't squirm out. Let him convict you because he's convicting you in a way that will bring you to a more better image of Jesus Christ in your life, a sanctified version. But there are so many ways to serve. But we continually say, well, I can't give this time because something else is of more value. And I would be willing to bet that if I went down and sat down with every single one of your schedules, lots of valuable things that I would totally agree with you on. But when Mary sits down to wash Jesus' feet, she didn't just grab a towel, she used her hair. When Martha's serving the Lord, he's not confronting her at this point. She's making this beautiful meal. The very thing that she was confronted on before as doing the wrong thing now is the right thing in the right time. And there are so many ways to serve people in the church, out of the church, your neighbors, people that know Jesus, people that don't know Jesus. One of the, one of the ways, like our, our poor kids ministry keeps having to cancel classes because we just don't have enough volunteers. 
Like, I mean, like, that's just one way for us to sacrifice ourselves. And I get it. Another hour. Oh, my goodness, another hour. But the, the value of doing that is so much greater than the hour that we may fill with some extra football on Sundays or, or anything else. Are you serving? Anywhere. Are you serving? Are you on mission? Are you serving the Lord on mission throughout your community? This is, this is this question that I keep coming to, like to sit with Mary. See, and here's the thing that we don't like about Mary. What Mary does is so extravagant that we instantly go, it's not sustainable. There is no way that we can live our life like that. Like we can't, like our story is not going to be written and the three times we pop up, we're going to be at the feet of Jesus. Like that's just, that's just ridiculous. There's got to be some other things that she's doing, right? And we instantly displace, like it's just not possible. It can't happen. And, and, and what's, what's sad to me is that with the money and with the serving, we keep asking the question, we keep counting the cost wrong. See, because I've been praying about this. And I remember praying, I was like, okay, God, I'm being convicted by Mary and the extravagant way she is worshiping you. And it doesn't make sense that like, when I compare my life, I feel like I'm not even close to extravagant. I know that Jesus is not keeping score and being like, well, Mary is here and Bren's like here. I know that's not how that works. I understand that. But I really, when I look at Mary and I look at that life, I want my life to be marked in a way where I throw off all inhibitions to be with Jesus. And so I start asking the question, okay, God, what do you want me to do with my money? Like, what do you, what do you want me to do with my time? How can, how can I reorient it, especially as I start thinking about this in a, in a biblical and a healthy way coming off of rest and not, not killing my family, not doing these things? How can I, how can I do this with my, my, my stuff? And I realize that the question is, I've been doing wrong math because in all those things, I said, my money, my stuff, and my time. And I was bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, so my life is not my own. Your life is not your own. If you claim and bear the name of Jesus Christ as Christian, as follower of Jesus, as surrendered to him as Lord, then you are a bondservant, a joyful slave to Jesus Christ where your life is about him. Your money is not your money. Your time is not your time. Your family is not your family. Everything you have is his to be used for his glory. If I keep asking, what do you want me to do with my money, my money, I will continually try to strip money from the money bag like Judas did. I say, okay, Jesus, it's all yours. And yeah, I really, I, I want this, but it's all yours. And if there's a need that you feel like you're convicting me or pushing me to, to give to, if I'm supposed to, to give to this mission, to give to this church, to give to these things, and God, who am I to say that, no, I want this for me? But of all the things that Mary did that's the most painful one for us to um, confront in our lives, because I think money and time is definitely a painful one, of all the things to confront is the way that she worships Jesus. And now, now hear me on this, but worship is not just singing, okay? Paul says it this way in Romans 12, 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That means you are a living sacrifice, dying to yourself over and over and over again for the glory of God means everything that you are is there. Psalm 71, 8 says this, my, foul, my mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. I, like if you've ever eaten with any of my kids, they like talk with their mouth full, like, like food's always coming out when they're talking and you're like dodging stuff. Like we're trying to get the story like, oh, there goes a chip. Get a corn chip in the eye if you're not careful around my house, okay? But that's what this is saying. This is saying that your mouth is so full that what comes out is praise for his glory. 
that every time your mouth opens, it just, it just oozes out. It just falls out. It's spilling on everyone around you. And we, as a church, tend to see people when they are worshiping Jesus and throwing off inhibitions and start going, whoa, 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 crazy. Simmer down now. Like, you're making me uncomfortable. And I will admit that some people may be doing things that are for their own glory or for their own excitement. But we, we have to look at Mary's approach here, okay? And it has to have some kind of bearing on our life because what she's doing culturally makes no sense. It's, it's unacceptable culturally to let her hair down and do this. It's fiscally irresponsible. Like, if you came to me today and said, the Lord has asked me to give my entire year's salary away, I would be the first one to say, are you sure? Because that doesn't make sense mathematically. But, but look at how Mary does it. And this is what's, I think, lost in the community of the church as a whole and myself in general, is we tend to see the way that people worship God. And instead of entering in and being like, okay, I don't understand this. This makes me a little uncomfortable, but I'm here with you. We like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't want to do it that way. I'm going to go find somewhere else to worship that fits in my, my style of worship. And not just music, but just worshiping Jesus. And what she does is she does something so wrong culturally, so fiscally irresponsible, but she does it in the confines of the safety of community. Look at this. She doesn't she doesn't throw it up on Twitter or Facebook like, hey, look what I'm doing tonight. Going to get this oil on Jesus. All right. Like, she doesn't put it out there. She does it within her community, with her family, with her brother Lazarus, who has been raised from the dead by the man that she's doing this with. In the home of Simon the leper, who most likely had been healed by Jesus and doing it in this way. She does it with, with Martha, who, who earlier was confronting her about sitting with Jesus, but now is perfectly content with Mary being with Jesus again. I picture Martha, and they're cooking up you know, some cool like yummy food or whatever they're cooking right there. I don't know what it would be. And I see her looking over, and oh, here goes Martha again. I can smell it. Here it is. And having joy in it. She does it in community. I think so often many of us want to get like on for Jesus, like, yeah, I'm going to go. And right now I'm saying this and people are going to be like, let's go, let's go, let's go. And you're going to be like, I want to leave community and go. And it's like, no, 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 no. You, you, there's, there's safety and health in community. <laughs> Judas displays a certain utilitarianism, kind of a pragmatic compassion. See, he says something that I think many of us, and hear me on this, many of us do this on a regular basis. Jesus pits that which is of Jesus against Jesus. He sees, he sees this moment, sees her doing this thing, and Judas says, this money should have been given to the poor. And you know what, Judas is like, well, that makes sense. I mean, the disciples, I think we forget, the disciples didn't know it was Judas that would betray him. Like, they had no idea, even when Last Supper, right after this, like, who is it? So Judas lived close enough and fake enough to fool all of them, except for Jesus. And Judas says, we should be giving this money to the, the, the poor. And what, he does, what does he do? He takes a woman who has dropped herself into complete humility, touching the feet with her hair. Feet were dirty back in this day. Using an, a ridiculous amount of expensive perfume. Doing something that shouldn't be acceptable or allowed to do in this community. And she does this. And Judas says, Yeah, that's that's great. But what about the poor? And church, I'm gonna tell you right now, we are so good at doing what Judas does today. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You want you want to engage in this, but what about? But what about? What but about? And we continually try and take things that are of God and make them in conflict with each other, which they just aren't. Jesus' response is great. Leave her alone. 
You always have the poor with you. He's not advocating like, yes, spend it this way. He's saying, his statement is like, yes, Judas, good. You want to serve the poor, go. You will continually get to do this. But right now, she's with me. You know, it's interesting. She doesn't put her name on Facebook. She doesn't put it on Twitter. By the way, those weren't invented back then for you young folks, okay? She doesn't do that. But what's interesting is in Matthew and Mark, what does Jesus say about her? It's beautiful. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And here we are thousands of years later talking about this Mary person. Are you willing to give it all? I, I would believe that every single one of you that professes the name of Jesus, when you surrendered your life to Jesus, however long ago that was, in that moment, you counted the cost. You said, oh yeah, I'm in. But over time, we've unintentionally allowed ourselves to, to minimize, to put things in conflict with each other, Elevating one act for Jesus higher than others. A scholar says it this way. This is essentially what, he's, what Judas is trying to do. He says, if self-righteous piety sometimes snuffs out genuine compassion, it must also be admitted with shame that social activism, even that which meets real needs, sometimes masks a spirit that knows nothing of worship and adoration of God. Are you willing to throw off inhibitions to worship Jesus? We are um, doing baptisms today. And I love baptisms because it's, a, it's, a, it's an opportunity for someone to declare truly who Jesus is in their life. And I especially like this baptism because one of my kiddos is getting baptized today, which is just fantastic. But as I think about um, what it means for us to follow Jesus, and I think about what Mary did, and if I line my life up to Mary's, in my worship, in my time, in my expenses, my finances, again, which I've declared are not mine. But if I line them up, if there's, if I read those things, and, and maybe if you read those things, and if, you, if we aren't confronted at all by that, like either we've got it going on, like praise Jesus that you are sitting at the feet of Jesus like Mary was, or we're doing what the Pharisees, what Judas what people continually do when they meet Jesus. They try and focus on something else so that they doesn't get to the heart of what really is going on. Try and hide behind a theology or hide behind, look what I'm doing here. Or some of you right now, I even brought up finances. You're like patting yourself on the back. Well, I give so much, but then the rest of your life, most people would not have any idea you know Jesus. And we, we tend to do this as, as followers of Jesus. We, we tend to focus in on one area and make ourselves about that so that we can look really religious and really solid while ignoring all other aspects of the gospel in our lives. And what I love about Mary is that we get nothing else from her. <laughs> She's at the feet of Jesus listening to him. She's at the feet of Jesus pleading for him, begging for him to do something with Lazarus. And she's at the feet of Jesus anointing him as the rightful king that he is. And, and I, I, I want my life to be marked as someone that's at the feet of Jesus. And I, I tend to believe that, I, I choose to believe that all of you want that as well. But, but to do that, you're, you're going to have to throw off some inhibitions. You're going to have to be willing to go a little bit further than you are comfortable with. And by a little bit, it probably should be really uncomfortable at times in your life. There's going to be a call on your life that's going to cause you to sacrifice so much that you're going to be like, I cannot give anymore. And Jesus is going to say, that's good because I'm your strength. This is a broken and disgusting and horrific world. I, I mean, like, it is just sad 
to see the brokenness that is on repeat on every headline in every person's life over and over and over again. Death and destruction and sadness over and over and over again. And you and I, those that bear the name of Jesus, we carry the hope of the world. We literally, we, we literally are beacons of light saying that death is not the end. That death, even death has no victory. We carry the hope. You and I, you bear the name of Jesus, we carry the hope. So, so why not let our lives worship and serve and, and, and give in a way that shows that we carry hope that does not hold us tied to this world that we are just in because we are not of the world, we are just in it. But the people that walk and live and breathe that sit at the feet of Jesus, why not in the safety of community throw off some inhibitions and do something just a little crazy for Jesus? Something that others would be like, whoa, that's challenging. I don't know if I can do that. And instead of looking down on them and being like, well, I did it, you should do it. That's pride and you just messed the whole thing up, right? Look at them and say, well, come with me. Let's do this. Let's pray together. Let's figure this out. Let's walk together. I said this last service and um, it was very true. Someone is going to get baptized. They want their family in town for it. Um, But some of you are here as followers of Jesus and have never been baptized. You haven't been baptized. You haven't stepped in that out in faith. Um, You are still counting the cost with bad math. You're not willing to throw off the inhibitions because you're afraid of what your hair may look like or what your what it'll feel like with wet clothes or what the people around you might think having known you for so long and not seeing you get baptized. Baptism is, is, is a command. We see that in Matthew chapter 28. It says, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a command for us. We see that in Romans 6 that we are, we are baptized in the likeness of his death and, and risen in the likeness of him with Christ. So baptism is a beautiful and a profound opportunity for you to declare like, I am Jesus's. I want to sit at his feet and I'll break an alabaster flask full of a ridiculous amount of oil to sit with him just for one minute if he gives me the time for it. That my, that my life, my marriage, my kids, my, my money, all of those things, I will remove the my from the front of it and say, your life, your kids, your money. And baptism is a declaration of that life. It's an opportunity for you to say, I believe in Jesus. He's my Lord. And therefore, I want to align myself to him. So if you are here today, and you know Jesus, you profess Jesus, and you are following Jesus, and you have not been baptized, we will have, I will stand in the back of the room here after we do this baptism during the next set of songs, and I'd love to talk to you about getting baptized. And if you're here today, and you don't know what you believe about Jesus, or you thought you believed something about Jesus, or you, maybe you, you'd call yourself kind of de-churched, you, you said you believed at one point, but you don't anymore, I, I refuse to believe that you're here as an accident. I refuse to believe that God is not at work in your heart. In fact, I would, I would contend with you, I'd plead with you to not believe the lie that you aren't lovable. Not believe the lie that you have to do something to fix yourself first, but to let him have his way with you. And instead of doing what, what we may want to do and try and be controlled in it, do what the Mary of Luke 7 did and just wept at Jesus' feet, came to him as a sinner, and Jesus did not turn her away. In fact, he turned away the religious leaders that were trying to keep her from him. As we uh, move into a time of worship, I'm going to pray for us. Uh, my hope would be that you would see the life of a seven-year-old proclaiming to be with Jesus. And it would move you in your life. 
It would, it would shake you if you've been following Jesus for a long time and you forgot that feeling. You forgot what it meant to just throw off all inhibitions, get baptized with a sweatshirt on. I don't know why she did that. You can't worship Jesus too much. You can't give too much. You will never be left wanting. There's nothing worth living your life for other than Jesus. May we never believe the lie that anything else plus Jesus will actually be more. And for Heavenly Father, we thank you for, um, I thank you for Mary and the fact that um, as a way to honor her faithfulness to you that we thousands of years later are talking about her while talking about the gospel that is the good news of Jesus dying for us, raising for us, raising from the dead and being Lord of our lives. Um, God, for Priscilla and the baptism, I pray that she would walk out a life where many people come to know you because of your strength in her, not anything that she is, apart from just being identified as a child of you. And God, as there's anyone here today that is wrestling with uh, baptism, is, is maybe they see themselves like quarreling with you, fighting with you. God, I pray that they would just, you would just disarm them, let them to drop their fists down and recognize that you are not fighting them. You are trying to draw them near for holding them. And God, for um, the many people that are represented in this room that don't know Jesus but are connected to people in this room, I pray that we would see more and more and more people come to know you in this valley, in this state, in this world. And we give all the glory to your son, Jesus Christ, who we celebrate. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. Please visit revolution22.org to find out more information about our church. We remind you to continue to value community. We pray that God's word has drawn you closer to him and that you may continue 